Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. On the Record with White House correspondent April Ryan. I'm April Ryan with On the Record. Former Mayor Mitch Landrieu, you have been someone who's talked about race. You were the mayor of a city that... Uh, was in the forefront when it came to issues of poverty, when it came to, when it came to issues of injustice. Um, we're talking about New Orleans, Louisiana, and not just Katrina. Police-involved issues, uh, trying to bring back a city that was devastated uh, in, in, in areas that were low-income, that were impacted by uh, the levy break. But in the midst of all of this, you decided to take on an issue of race that is in the forefront right now the people really don't really address like they should even as the president keeps throwing his barbs and calling out cities and people you went on a southern uh race racial justice tour why and what did you find well uh, you know as you've just outlined i've spent a lot of time growing up as a white man in the south an elected official serving a city that was over 60% African-American experiencing the impact that race has on almost every issue that we face. And of course, in the country right now, we see a very heightened level of racial animosity that we thought that we had put away from us for a very long time. And it just occurred to me that we would never actually be able to be the United country that we always profess we want to be. Uh, out of many, one, which is where our name comes from, e pluribusunum, unless and until we figured out how to get beyond the race issue. Now, this, of course, as you know, slavery was America's original sin. The vestiges of, of that continue today. We still are ripped apart by race in so many different ways. And, and in my experience, almost every issue that we dealt with race on the, uh, was underlying it. So I thought it was important to actually just go find people where they were and to listen to them. And so we did 800 or so personal interviews across the South. We went to 28 different communities. We went to 13 different states. We talked to every kind of person you can talk to, ages, you know, white, black, you know, Hispanic, um, college-educated, non-college-educated. We touched everybody to see if that we could find some pathway forward and whether or not people were actually committed to the notion, you know, that the country could be better off if we found a way to get along better. And that's, that's what prompted us to, to do this work. And, of course, we gathered a lot of information and a lot of research and believe that there actually is a pathway, that, but we have to choose to take it, you know, much like other countries who have suffered, you know, terrible atrocities. But they acknowledged it and, they, and said they wanted to work through it. The United States has never really done that. And so we want to explore the possibility of creating some kind of system that actually helps us do it. So in the midst of it all... Um you said there is a pathway in the midst of all of this, in the midst of this animosity, this racial hatred, um, these cultural differences. What is the pathway that you found? Well, the two, first of all, the two things that are, that are true at once, but they're opposite of each other. One is on the national level. If you're talking about federal politics, 
and you're speaking in Washington language, there is this very vicious divide that is ugly and hateful and mean. If you get down on the ground in America and you're going from town to town, community to community, we went through the Delta, we went through Appalachia. One of the things that we found, and, and this was confirmed not only by the meetings, but the poll. And, and before, before you us. say, when you say the Delta, Mississippi Delta and Appalachia yeah, and Kentucky. <laughs> That's right. We went, let me, let me just walk through this. We went through West Virginia, Kentucky, Tennessee. We were in Alabama, Georgia. We were in Mississippi. We went to Florida. We went to Texas. And we went to Louisiana and a couple other places in between. We were in Dogpatch, Kentucky. We were in Indianola, et cetera. So we went everywhere, big and small. And, and then and then we polled it after we heard with our own ears and eyes, eyes and ears. We actually then did a poll to confirm that what we heard was so. And one of the things that was heartening is that many people that we talked to overwhelmingly think that diversity is a strength. It's not a weakness. Everybody thought that everybody ought to have fair opportunity and everybody wanted their kids to be better than they were. Now, if that really is the truth, then there's a pathway to the future. Now, that was the good news. Here's the bad news. The white people that responded to our invitation to be interviewed and were polled think overwhelmingly that um, racism is just a single act of hatred against another person that doesn't look like them and has no real understanding or regard or historical knowledge about institutional racism. And of course, African Americans are pretty clear that they know what individual acts of racism are, but feel really strongly that the institutions have been designed in a way to not give them fair opportunity. And there's a difference in, in the interpretation of, you know, what those laws have done and what they haven't done. And so, you know, there's a huge uh, issue about how to bridge that gap. It also is true that on the local levels, people think as a general rule that art, music, sports can actually bring people together, but they also recognize that church is the most segregated power. And so there is some acknowledgement of it. And then finally, the most disheartening thing that we learned was that African-Americans and whites, about 50 percent of them, equal amounts, think the Civil War was fought over economics and not slavery. So there is an intense lack of historical knowledge about what our true story was, our true history was, and the narratives that have been told from our parents to today have not really fully explained our full and our total history. Well, um, Mayor Landrew, so... We know about slavery, but slavery was about economics. It was for, for that white landlord who's going to, that, that, right. not landlord, that white master who was going to, uh, I guess, rule his area. I mean, people, you, if your wealth was based on free labor from slaves who were stolen from another nation. Right. Well, in that sense, it was clear that that, that was an economic engine. But the, right. but, the, but the economic argument was based on having free labor, which, of course, could only happen if you had enslaved people. Right. And white people don't really have a full understanding of the African-American community's inability to build generational wealth because of housing discrimination, because of access to capital, as we talked about, lack of access, access to yeah. capital, all of that stuff. There's a lack of understanding and and primarily too. White people have a who responded to the to this to our invitation to talk to us all think that this happened a long, long time ago and ask, what does this have to do with me? And of course the African American community can explain that really clearly, which is not only was it not a long time ago, it's actually still happening today. And um, so there is there is a lot of uh, misunderstanding, a lot of really not fully appreciating what our true history was. It's clear that the stories 
of our past have not been fully told. Confederate Monuments is a perfect example. All they did, all those were, were a story that somebody else told from one perspective that only represented four years of the South. And it was the wrong story that was told. And it wasn't the whole story. And so when you ask older white people why they think the way they think, and they said, well, nobody ever taught us any differently, which is partly true. So, you know, what we, what, I guess what we concluded was a couple things. Number one, we are the way we are because the system was designed this way, which is why our report says divided by design. It was misdesigned. And we, if you want to fix it, you have to redesign it to achieve the result that you want to achieve. And if you want to achieve equal opportunity, if you want everybody's kids to have the same thing everybody else's kids have, if you want to be able to build generational wealth, then you have to design systems that are open, that are fair, and give everybody opportunity and everybody responsibility. That's one of the major conclusions that was drawn. The second was that you have to go back and tell everybody the whole story and change the narrative. So the story of the Central Park Five, for years and years and years, people heard that story one way until somebody went back and said, let's take another look at this and let's understand what really happened there. And of course, you could... You can multiply that times a thousand on almost every narrative, especially the Tulsa riots, quote unquote, mm -hmm. which were not, you know, that we, you know, the stories. But most Americans don't profess not to know that and profess not to have been taught. Now, the good news is that when people hear all that stuff, there is a sense of openness that is much more significant than what the national news media reflects about Washington. In other words, when, when you can sit people down calmly and they're in a safe space, they don't think you're trying to take something from them, and they learn this. My sense is that people can be open to changing and transformation. And other countries have, have gone through this, but you have to go through it, and you have to be willing to. And finally, the thing that we learned was we talked about white privilege and we talked about reparations. Most white people, as soon as you said the word reparations, got their back up and said, look, I don't I'm not paying any anybody a dollar. Yeah, that's right. I didn't, I'm not giving anybody any money. I didn't have anything to do with it. But if you stop them and say, well, wait, let me ask you a question. Your mama raised you, right? She sure did. I said, well, if you, if you mess something up, weren't you supposed to fix it? If, uh, weren't you supposed to clean it up? If you broke it, weren't you supposed to fix it? If, if, you, if you created something that was, that was wrong, weren't you supposed to make it right? And they said, uh-huh. And I said, well, what if we weren't asking you for money? What if we were asking you to think about the systems that were designed the wrong way that should be fair to everybody. They go, oh, well, you know, I mean, you know, I, I can think about that. And I said, the other thing is white privilege. I don't, I don't um, benefit from white privilege. I got everything that I, that I worked hard for. And I said, I'm sure you did. But maybe if I'd explained it to you about times that you might have got the benefit of the doubt or that your African-American friend didn't, like when their son got pulled over by the police. Can you understand that? Yes, I can understand that. So there are trigger words that you know, have been not helpful in the discussion. And of course, we're trying to find the language that opens people up. And then finally, you say to white uh, Americans who respond to this, you know, the African-American community, what, one of the things they really say that they want is just an acknowledgement that something wrong really happened. Are you open to at least doing that? And most all of them say, absolutely. So that's a starting point. And, and, you know, maybe I'm an eternal optimist, but I know that if you want something and you work towards it, you know, and, and you ask people to be open-minded about it, you're going you're gonna to find an opportunity, especially in younger generations, uh, to, to move in that direction, because that's the way the country's gone. And we want to try to help facilitate, you know, uh, a process by which people can be invited into this discussion and conduct it the way they think that they should in the, in the, 
very small communities and neighborhoods that they live in. Hmm. Mayor Landry, I'm going to tell you this. 1619, Africans were brought to this nation, and what is this 2019, and we still haven't gotten it right. Um, and, and you were talking a topic. Well, I think. Yes, go ahead, sir. First of all, the 1619 project is a, is a great project. Um, and yes, you're right, we still have not gotten it right. When you ask people like John Lewis, who, as you know, is he's one of my heroes, and he's, he's going to be a saint. Uh, you know, have we made progress? You know, he and other great leaders will say, "Lesson, we have made tremendous progress. Um, but it is absolutely clear that we have a long way to go. That's and right. it is rooted in, it is rooted in this notion that some people are superior to others because of the color of their skin. And that notion is antithetical to the idea of America. It's just antithetical. You cannot keep both of those thoughts in your mind at the same time and say you're a real patriot. You just can't. Because the Founding Fathers, as imperfect as they were, as hypocritical as they were, when, when they penned the words, all men are created equal, while we had enslaved people, they set that as an aspiration for the country, a more perfect union. And we know, and Barack, President Obama speaks to this really, really well, you have to keep understanding that that justice is, is, is important as law and order, and so is mercy. And both of those thoughts are critical to the United States of America. And we are all rooted in this very basic principle that we all come to the table of democracy as equals. We just have to learn how to walk the walk and not just talk the talk. And it's clear that we have a lot of work to do together. But at the end of the day, it should be clear to everybody who's listening that we are all better together. When everybody is working together to a common purpose and everybody has equal opportunity, equal responsibility, the mission of the United States should be clear to everybody. And we have to get there, and we're not there yet. Mayor Landrieu, you are speaking my language, but you know, it's so interesting. I wish you would have taken me on this tour with you, but let me tell you, um, it's so interesting in the South, a lot of people don't know this, you have more people, more African Americans who live in the South than anywhere else in this great, in this wonderful country. Um, I'm not gonna use the word great because it would send the wrong message to some people. But in this wonderful country. But in 2019, now I'm and I'm putting this out here. I'm 52 years old. I am just I'm just a, a few years shy of the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. So it was still in my parents' time when they weren't able to go to certain stores to buy clothes, when they weren't able to move into certain communities because they were redlined. Um, but in 2019, and I love that you're doing this, but in 2019, um, for the last 22 years, I've been working at the White House. And as you said, you said something very poignant. Race touches everything and people don't realize it. And you being a white man saying this, they would listen to you more so than they would listen to me. Because if I say it, it's race but if you say it, it's more palatable. But at the end of the day, we are Americans. We don't have anti-lynching laws on the books in 2019. In 2019. Um, in 2019, we still have people not allowed to live in certain communities. In 2019, from the if, and this is spanning back from the very beginning, from when blacks were brought to this nation. First of all, you made some excellent points, and a couple of them are worth reiterating, which is when white people who responded to the survey um, professed not to have been taught. Um, they weren't really not taught the true stories. They were not really aware that many of those laws 
that are producing lack of opportunity because of redlining or because of gerrymandering, no anti-lynching laws, the ability to discriminate, et cetera, et cetera, that those, they thought that that was a long time ago, and they didn't think that it was up until very recently. And so, and, and the concept of building generation wealth is not something that they've thought a lot about. And so when you start talking to them about it, there seems to be an opening for it. At the end of the day, though, you know, America's greatness is really founded in our goodness. You know, there, there are countries that have been around for a long period of time, so we have we have a long way to go together, which which adds to the fierce urgency of doing it now. This is something that's very much common sense. If you bought a house um, that somehow had a defective design and it wasn't functioning, you would actually ask the people who designed it to, to fix it and to repair the damage. And so there is a way for us to get to a better place if, number one, we acknowledge that there was a wrong, that there were consequences to that wrong, and that some of those consequences last today. And April, I'll tell you this, my daddy, I just had lunch with my dad, who was 89 years old. He just told me the story, and, and he admonished me because I didn't tell it the right way the last time he heard it. But my daddy's 89 years old, and he remembers sitting on the lap of his grandmother. His grandmother was born in 1849. Now, he sat on this woman's lap. He knew this woman. He touched this woman. She was born in 1849. She was 16 years old when Abraham Lincoln died. And my father said, that's a good story, son, but say this, that if, in fact, I was an African-American man, and I was talking about my great-grandmother, it is highly likely that she would have been enslaved. Uh-huh. So when we say it was that far ago, he goes, I actually touched that woman. My, great, my, my grandfather was born in 1893. Uh-huh. My, my grandfather. And so it wasn't that long ago. And I think when people start to think about wealth that has been passed down by their families or opportunity, whether it's education or monetary means or a house or something, and we think about the family separation that took place in the African-American community, it not only was yesterday, it is today. And I think when people get their head wrapped around that and then finally understand that it is not just a matter of justice for people who suffered a wrong, but it's better for all of us when everybody has opportunity and responsibility. You start to get how urgent it is for our country to get this right, because we do have a lot of really important issues that we have to resolve that we cannot resolve if we can't resolve the issue of race. And and, and two issues that, that are still left unresolved. From the moment Africans were brought to this nation to today, there have been issues with policing. At first, it was sheriffs going after the slaves. Now it's policing. And the black community um, is not saying they don't like police. They're saying they want to weed out bad policing. That's one thing. In 2019, we're still dealing with. And then there's another issue we're still dealing with. We, as African-Americans, are now voting without the full protections of the Voting Rights Act. And it was put in place in the 1960s so that blacks were insured in the South chances to vote properly. Now it's not just a Southern thing where we're worried about people in the South, be it Georgia, you know, this is the last election, or be it Florida, but it's North Carolina. It's all over the nation. It's in North Dakota. It's everywhere. So, right. yeah, with all well, of let me, the... Let me, let, me, let me take a crack at addressing both of those things, because when I was mayor of my city, as you know, we invited the Justice Department to come in, and we and it worked through a consent decree that whose purpose was to retrain all of our police officers by rehiring and retraining and re-supervising to work on uh, techniques of de-escalation and, of course, being able to uh, engage in community policing where they saw everybody, irrespective of race, as a human being. And 
not to shoot first, but to shoot last. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a myth that the African-American community doesn't like the police. That is a, that's a myth. In, in we are the police in a lot of especially, especially, Especially in African-American communities. Yeah. They, they they want the police to be there, and they want the police to keep them safe because the police's motto is to protect and to serve. What they don't want are folks that they don't know, that, that don't treat them well, that don't understand what's going on, and they're not to protect and to serve, but to do something else. Now, it, 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 should not, it should go without even having to mention that most men and women who put on that uniform go out there, they risk their lives every day, they're good police officers, they do what they're supposed to do, but it cannot be denied that in some police departments, some officers, and in some communities have learned how to police the wrong way. And when people are afraid of the police because they think the police are going to do the wrong thing, it creates dissension in the community. And great police officers understand this. This is not, I know that this has gotten into a, to a little bit, but when you, see, when you see as many unarmed teenagers, right, that are shot in difficult circumstances and there's no accountability and there's no transparency, there's a problem. I can tell you this, in my community, where there have been police-involved shootings, where the evidence was clear that the perpetrator, that the police officers were chasing, actually had a gun, and they put the police officers under threat, and the police officers responded in the appropriate way. Both the Af- And there was transparency, and there was an investigation, and it was a just result. The African-American community was, was it, it, it was a terrible situation, but the African-American community said, we understand. It's just in those situations where there's no transparency and the, and the evidence doesn't really reflect what the outcome should have been and those very difficult circumstances that we've had all across America. And the African-American community stands shoulder to shoulder with police officers that are killed in the line of duty, whether it's in Dallas or in Baton Rouge, in equal numbers as, as whites. But, but to deny that there's a problem in the criminal justice system because that people were not properly trained or properly supervised or there hasn't been accountability is to deny a really uncomfortable reality, especially with, with mass incarceration. They're not saying that they don't want anybody to go to jail. There are bad people that are going to do things that hurt people. We have to make sure that our communities are safe. But that doesn't mean that the police officers have to see every African-American kid walking down the street as a criminal. Those, are, those, are not, those things are not even in the same league. And there is a way to work through these issues if you have open dialogue. Mayor Andrew, um, at the end of the day, you've got a great understanding. You've got this survey that you've done that um, is historic. Um, and it's, it's real. But at the end of the day, where is it going? What's it going to do? Who is it going to impact? Well, it's a, it's a great question. I mean, one of the things we want to try to explore is how we help facilitate this kind of dialogue in every neighborhood in America. And we want to try to do three things. It, uh, one, we want to try to partner with sports entertainment folks to start telling the real stories and true stories and the whole story by changing the narrative and making everybody see every other individual as a human being first. The second thing that we want to do is we want to train leaders, elected leaders and community leaders in how to actually have the uncomfortable conversations about race that, as you know, are just really hard for us to have because we don't, the other thing we learned is we don't really know how to talk about it well. We kind of talk past each other and there needs to be a way for us to get to a common call. And then the third thing is to do the kind of policy research that reflects the kinds of things that you were talking about about voter suppression and the Voter Rights Act, redlining, so people can actually see in chapter and verse that the stories that we're telling 
and the leading that we're doing is actually rooted in real facts and real policy that can help us move forward. And we think that if we start working on that, we work on it really hard, and we go to communities and help facilitate, you know, not row, but just steer and help them, you know, walk through these discussions that the, the country's going to be better for it. Mayor Landrew, I appreciate you. I mean, there are people who do not believe that race touches everything. I mean, it even goes as far as going to our transportation system. The interstates were built to keep yep. certain people in, certain people out. Yep. People don't see that. But I thank you. And well, every, you know this. Every place you go in the south, this is true all over the country, but certainly every place you go in the south, there's always a railroad track or a river or a lake or a highway that separates us. That's just universally true. And oh, by the way, for people in America that listen, urban does not mean black and rural does not mean white. That's not the reality. The sad thing about it is people say urban is black and rural is white. And the problem is, is that once again, in rural, rural the South, you've got more blacks in the South than anywhere else. But urban America is also all America. You have a high concentration of, of urban right. minority people in a lot of these urban areas, but it's not all black. Right. Well, 54% of African-Americans in the United States of America live in the South. And if you travel across the South, whether you're in a small town or a big town, a rural or a town or an urban center, there are African-Americans and whites that live in both of those places. If you travel through the Delta, the Mississippi Delta, around where Arkansas, Louisiana, and Mississippi meet in every one of those towns, that's, that's that's, that's not all white. African-Americans and whites live side by side in those communities, just like they do in the city of New Orleans. So, again, there's this, there's this narrative on the national level that people listen to that makes them think they're supposed to do something. But it's not true on the ground. And so what we need to do is see each other, talk to each other, really try to figure out whether we believe that diversity is a strength, not a weakness, and whether we think everybody needs fair opportunity and we want to leave a better life for our kids. And if we do, we've got to change the way the country is designed. Because, and by, by going back to the, to the broken design and fix it, you know, because it's produced a bad result up until today, we can be better. And I think most people in America understand that, notwithstanding how angry everybody is on the national level. Are you sending this to the Trump administration? <laughs> <laughs> you laugh, but I mean, it's, yes. yeah, you are. Well, of course, they need to under, they need to understand. I mean, we're sending it to everybody in the country. You know, anybody who wants to look at it and listen to it, and of course we will, and we'll send it to Congress. And we hope people are, you know, buoyed by it. But let me be clear about this. President Trump, um, as awful as he has been on the issue of race, uh, and he could hardly be worse on it and hardly be more divisive, is a symptom and an accelerator and an accelerant, and not just the, and he's not the cause. This has been around a long time, and he's making it worse, but it's going to be here a long time after him. We have to, as a country, you know, decide that we don't want to do this anymore. And that that's what it's going to take. And it's going to be here long after he's gone, although it's going to be worse when he leaves. No question about it. I like your mind. Thank you, Mayor Landry. April, awesome. thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for your time. With this week's On the Record, I'm AURN White House correspondent April Ryan. Don't forget to subscribe to On the Record on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or any other podcast directory. If you like what you hear, leave a five-star review. On the Record, a product of American Urban Radio Networks.